0: Kevin Dunn says, junior we're going to come back and do an on-camera you and King, and you got to have to give everybody an update on Owen's condition. And I said, nobody's giving me an update on Owen's condition. Well, J.R., he's dead. He died. And, you know, nobody told me. So I didn't say that to him. I just listened. And then he says, and we're back in 10, 9.
1: Waiting on Matt D. at Deluxe SF on Market Street to sell me the latest Frank Gerwardek I'm Schmitty, and this is Talkin' Schmidt. This is episode 73, and our guest is Evan Husney. Evan is the executive producer and co-creator of the wrestling documentary series on Viceland called Dark Side of the Ring. Although this episode is not about skateboarding, the stories these wrestlers make put us skaters to shame. If you think skate rock is gnarly, Wait till you hear about Bruiser Brody getting killed backstage in Puerto Rico. The highly acclaimed Wrestling doc series is coming off its season two finale with the much anticipated and heartfelt story about the tragic death of wrestler Owen Hart. Owen died back in 1999 after falling 85 feet from the rafters during his ring entrance at the WWF's Over the Edge pay-per-view event. What's even crazier about that incident is that the wrestling match continued after they carried off his body. The show covers a lot of great stories, is fast-paced with tons of interviews featuring colorful characters with wild personalities. Traveling around doing the interviews has been one hell of a ride for both Evan and his partner Jason. All along the way, they've been in some sketchy
0: scenarios with cocaine dealers, car robbers, and even a threat from a former wrestler. And his response initially was, if you use my name, if you tell my story, I'm going to send people from Brooklyn after you. You know, and he was like threatening to like send these like, you know, nameless thugs from Brooklyn to come like beat us up or kill us or whatever.
1: If you haven't seen this series, I can't recommend it enough, whether you're a wrestling fan or not. I want to give a big shout out to my good friend in Brooklyn and lead singer of the band Nature, Ryan Wybus, who connected me and Evan and helped make this interview happen. So thank you, Ryan. Growing up a wrestling fan and after binge-watching the Doc series, it was really special for me to get to talk about this stuff with Evan. I wanna dedicate this episode to my brother, Tim, who was at my side for every pay-per-view, live wrestling event, and even at the hotel bar slowly sipping drinks side-by-side with some of wrestling's legends. I gotta give you all a quick heads-up product-wise we finally got our Brian Sieber designed t-shirt and three-quarter sleeve raglan style jersey in stock, and you can get these along with all other merch at TalkinSchmidt.com. Also, check out your local skate shops for TalkinSchmidt merch too, and of course, if they don't have any, please feel free to rattle their cage until they do. Coming off Memorial Day weekend, we want to give a big shout out to all you veterans that fought for our freedom and paid the ultimate price, and to all you on the front line now getting it done for us in these pandemic times. Me and my ED salute you. Okay, well, I've jobbed it long enough, and apparently the Twitter sphere has me shaping up as a heel named the Mike Stalker. So off we go. And as they say in the squared circle, let's get ready to podcast.
0: Hi, this is Evan Husney, and you're listening to Talkin' Schmidt.
2: It's cool. Like tonight is the night.
0: Here we go again. Just give it the old because car, right? All big dogs in. Hey, 96 times, Schmidt
2: Thanks, Schmitty. We
0: on? Schmitty? Talking Schmidt.
1: That's called a hot little bitch. I can <laughs> shit my pants. Your that's is fucking deep. I don't give a fuck about your fucking multi-million dollar numbers. Who this guy who thinks he's tough shit? What's up? I'm here for Greg Smith. Yay! Alright, we, uh, we got a little wrestling intro I cooked up for you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, now entering your headphones, weighing in at 172 pounds, hailing from Minneapolis, Minnesota, it's the executive producer and co-creator of The Dark Side of the Ring,
0: this is Evan Husney. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was 172 pounds. Oh my God, that would be great. Did I undershoot it? Yeah, I'm probably like right now after doing two seasons of the show, I'm probably like at 205 210 maybe. really? Yeah, but I'm six feet so it's not like crazy.
1: Well, with the pandemic, the COVID nineteen, I always say is the COVID nineteen because I gained nineteen pounds during it. <laughs> exactly, it's that insane. Too. <laughs> that too, like you're just working and you're at home all the time, and your refrigerator becomes
0: your best friend. <laughs> it does. Like I should be at one eighty five, but uh, we'll get there after this. After this, we'll get there.
1: So was that right? You were you? you I don't know if you were born there, but you grew up in Min- yes, Minneapolis. Yes, that's
0: where I'm from. Yeah, yeah, great place. Yeah,
1: cool. So what's like a little, uh, background info on you? Uh, you're not living there still, right? You, you moved to New York or I
0: went to school in Minneapolis. Um, I think like when I turned 18 the day after I graduated, I was pretty much out of there and went to Los Angeles to try and, you know, chase the film dream. Um, I was also really into music Mm. too. So I, I, played, you know, guitar and, you know, and stuff like that and wanted to also be a metalhead and things like that. And, um, and, and, and after uh, I was in L.A., I got kind of disillusioned, like, oh, this is hard. And then uh, I went to San Francisco for a few years, worked in a few record stores, you know, video stores, that type of thing. And then eventually moved to New York and started my film career uh, with Trauma Entertainment, unbelievably. And uh, if you've seen, like, the Toxic Avenger and those type of movies. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I started, got my foot in the door. And then, you know, eventually, years and years later, after distributing weird movies on video and things like that, I um, landed at Vice and um, was producing things for them and been working with them on and off pretty much since 2013.
1: Oh, okay. What was some of
0: your earlier work with Vice? I did, like, uh, my my first, like, real series with them Uh, Well, first I did a a web series called, um, um, it was called um, American Obsessions, and it was looking at kind of nostalgia-based things, like we did a documentary about Magic the Gathering and looking at all the, like, you know, interesting people surrounding that game and and, um, other kind of things like that. And then I did a doc series called Outsider, which was about kind of the B-side Tommy Wiseau, yes, like the B-sides of Tommy Wiseau-type filmmakers, (laughs) who are big dreamers have high aspirations of becoming famous Hollywood directors, but they, they made these films inadvertently that they thought were masterpieces, but actually weren't. Um, and we kind of chronicled their life and story and it's a very touching series actually. And then that led me to, you know, wanting to do something with my obsession with wrestling.
1: When did you get into wrestling?
0: Oh man, ever since I was five years old. Um, my, uh, my stepdad, at the time, I think, was the fir- got me a uh, Big Boss Man action figure when I was a kid because I was really into like cop stuff, yeah. like cop, uh-huh. cop like cartoons and movies and stuff. And he found this Big Boss Man figure, which I thought was like the coolest thing ever. And so um, that kind of just led to me going to like like a WWF match, I think, in like 1990 or 91. And it was this really funny story because. I was also a huge G.I. Joe fan. <laughs> I was really into G.I. Joe and, like, that type of thing. And, Same. And, like, Sergeant Slaughter was, like, you know, he was right. there at the company at the time. So I pretty much was going to the wrestling event to see Sergeant Slaughter, like, live and in person. That was, like, the reason why I went. But at that time in 1991... The WWF turned him into an Iraqi sympathizer character. If you remember that, <laughs> where he turned code against the U.S. and he was like all like supporting the like or like Saddam Hussein regime, right. and, and so I was there like cheering on this like Iraqi like <laughs> sympathizer, and my parents were like mortified because I I wasn't picking up that I'm supposed to be cheering for Hulk Hogan, who I was like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, yeah. beating up my fucking GI Joe, and so then I. Yeah, so then I, I it was weird. Like they thought maybe I had some some issues growing up. But um that was my first exposure to to wrestling and it just kinda became like an obsession like ever ever since then.
1: Yeah, so side note, you're you're from Minnesota, the state where a wrestler became governor.
0: That's right. I remember that. Yeah. yeah.
1: Jesse the body ventura, right?
0: Yeah, I actually met him. Outside of uh, a, a WCW uh, event in Minneapolis, he was, like, just outside, like, the, like, and they had all this crowd around him right when I think he was running or he had just become the governor. And I, and he got to sign my, like, he I got him to sign, like, one of my, like, signs or whatever that I made.
1: <laughs> so when my brother and I were growing up, we were huge wrestling fans. And Jesse the Body was, like the Jim Ross of that era. He was the guy that would do all the announcing and just had so much personality and he was an ex wrestler by this time or he dabbled with wrestling a little bit. He was old too, kind of like mostly announcing, but yeah, I've always been a fan of him. Like the best. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What, what was the, uh, the arena that they would do the shows in Minneapolis?
0: They would do, uh, the WCW shows were at the target center, Uh, where i saw a ton of you know concerts also growing up too Um, mm -hmm. my dad had like a wicked hookup at the target center um, from being in the music business and um and so we'd always go to the wrestling shows and any of the major like you know metal shows i was into as a kid and all the big arena metal shows and that was awesome but yeah Mm -hmm. that's that's where they would do a lot of the wrestling shows side note
1: to uh I got to give a big shout out to Wybish shout out. for um, mm. kind of connecting the two of us. He said that uh, you've done a few of his metal inquisitions a few times oh, yeah. with him and Tooth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I definitely go way back with those guys, um, you know, just being living in Brooklyn and, you know, being into similar music and, you know, um, I, I played bass in nature, you know, for a very short oh, amount of time <laughs> yeah for like Brad. a cup of coffee yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that was fun and um you know yeah i those guys are awesome and um you know they've always been you know supportive of things i've done and likewise and you know just awesome
1: funny enough is uh my theme or my intro tune is uh nature mary's cross by nature so oh really yeah so it's a complete circle <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, uh, those guys wow. are the homies. Like, uh, I I did a blog site called Epically Trife, and we had like a I think it was a two year anniversary party or something, and they flew out to SF and played. Uh, it was actually when they were this other band called Damasic, which is the same. Oh, band. I know them. Okay, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just I don't know. We've been tight uh, East Coast West Coast Bros for a while
0: yeah i i like i said i i i um there was a moment where ryan stepped away from the band right and then they had another they had uh they had their bassist exit and i filled in for bass for like one show wow and i learned the whole record like for months the first one and i got to play the show with them
1: Spider baby
0: exactly in like Montreal and it was it was awesome it was a great great experience I've always wanted to to have that metal live big metal live show experience and that that was that so it was cool have you ever heard of the bar Clems? Oh, of course. Yeah. I've DJed at Clems a couple of times. <laughs> I actually used to do this thing, which I want to do when the world opens again, where I would, uh, Ryan, a uh, 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 Wybest would let me, I almost called him Ryan, geez. Um, <laughs> he uh, he allowed, or I, I, I used to DJ like old 70s, like underground rock records there. That That's like my thing. And then I would just project like old 80s wrestling footage, like there at Clems. And oh, it was just sick. like- yeah, weird old Japanese wrestling footage, like, you know, and, like, you know, write Heap songs, like, all night.
1: He said to ask you about the epic sweaty basement hell. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so, when, around the time he was doing that Metal Inquisition show, I got just, like, really fascinated by this, like, kind of, I don't know, like, I don't know how to put it, like, outsider... Um, like metal obscure metal bands from around the world that are like total you know dime store basement like really poorly recorded you know and sometimes they'll have like synthesizer you know really cheap synthesizers in them and just like it's just super lo-fi the lowest fi possible but you know, they're really going for it, you know, type thing. Very ambitious, big dreams, you know, uh-huh. type type of metal. And uh, one band in particular I got obsessed with is this band called Dark Quarterer. This incredible Italian metal band from the early 80s. It's a shame that they're not the most famous band in the world. Um, <laughs> they're like, they're just this incredible progressive metal band um, who just, like, if you look them up on YouTube, it's amazing. Like the like lead singer, like the first time I saw them, they looked like it was like I laughed because of the way they looked It was like this guy with like this big like dad gut and like he had like you know like coke bottle glasses like you know like serial killer Jerry Dahmer glasses and he was like had a receding hairline and I'm like what is this but he's like screaming his balls off and I was like this is amazing and then as soon as I like listened to the record I was like oh my god this is like a masterpiece and I'm not being ironic or anything like it really truly is like a desert island album of mine their first album So I just kind of started to seek out these similar kind of like just gems, like real basement gems. I don't know how to put it other than that. And so then Uh I kind of put a little show together called Epic Sweaty Basement Hell, (laughs) which was the name of the, the radio hour that we did. And I just played all these different like songs that kind of fit that like, you know, you know, dad metal basement, you know, hell thing it was cool
1: rad oh, that's cool <laughs> yeah. all right well let's get into the wrestling um did you have a personal preference uh for the federations like wwe versus wcw or ecw or did you like it all um what was your like growing up what were you into
0: it came in waves for sure like when i when i was really young you know five and six and stuff i was into wwf because they were They just owned the market share at that time. So I was really into Hulk. I eventually embraced Hulk Hogan once and for all. But I liked, you know, Ultimate Warrior, Jake the Snake, the the Road Warriors, all those like seminal characters of the WWF I was obsessed with. Uh And then when WCW started to heat things up, you know, in the mid to late 90s, I definitely was all about the NWO and all about you know sting and all that stuff and really got into wcw especially because they would come through minneapolis all the time because they had a big connection to minneapolis um right. yeah so i really got into wcw around that time especially the cruiserweights too you know the eddie mm. guerreros the ray mysterios that type of thing i liked mm-hmm. um and then of course when steve austin started to take off <laughs> Then I was flipping back over to WWF like the rest of the country, and um, but I always had this setup where because they would put on you know Nitro and, and Raw WCW you know Nitro and WWF Raw were on at the same time, and I had thank God I had a picture-in-picture television so I could actually switch between the two shows like live you know so I always had it down and and sometimes when it got even crazier I would tape record on my VCR one of the shows and then watch the other one depending on what was going on. And then ECW came into my life eventually around that time, like 98, I think, because I was in my room. I'll never forget it. And I was like, I had this like fuzzy TV and like, I was like surf channel surfing. And all of a sudden this like weird broadcast came in like super late at night and it was all Mm. scrambled, but I could hear that it was wrestling. Like I could hear that like people were getting slammed. And then all of a sudden I heard this wrestler say that he was the whole fucking show and but like the word fuck like came out over the TV screen, which I'd never like heard before, like on television. I was like, what the hell is this? And and but I couldn't see it. And then that's when I started to realize that, oh, my God, there's this whole other underground wrestling thing. And then yeah. I really got into ECW like really big. Like that was like my that was my jam. And funny enough. I would go to the Mall of America all the time in Minnesota, you know, as you do as a Minnesotan, I guess. And I would would go down there and they had a little kiosk by RF Video and it was this kiosk that was selling bootleg or I don't know if they were bootleg or official, but like really like janky VHS tapes of ECW matches. So you could go to the Mall of America and buy these like, ecw vhs tapes and that's what i did as like you know 13 14 years old and it just blew my mind because it was like the most my parents had no idea i was watching like the most you know these barbed wire ring rope matches like no kid should be watching you know and it was amazing
1: it was underproduced and like fully gnarly
0: full gnarly and especially as a kid when you're trying to like be cool and into cool things and the wwf stuff oh that's fake But this is real. You know, this is the real deal.
1: It was kind of the same for us. Like, it kind of felt like it was the same time as kind of cable got invented or something. Like, Mm -hmm. it was before or right at that cusp where you didn't have access to all these channels. But somehow there was like a late night version of this thing that wasn't like really uh publicized but like you were like what is that
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah like it it felt like i was like like i was doing something bad like i was like you know drinking a beer when i shouldn't have or something like watching that because it was so uh wild and extreme and crazy but I, i i i loved it like the sandman like, the oh, Sandman yeah. became my Steve Austin growing up, you know? Like, I thought, like, growing up, like, that's the penultimate, you know, of what right. a cool guy is. Like, you know, <laughs> like, this yeah. guy and just wears sweatpants and, like, just drinks beer and smokes cigarettes and whacks people with a cane. Like, <laughs> that'll be me someday.
1: Funny. Do you remember... um I think okay, WCW and WWF or WWE uh-huh. uh, at the time were competing pretty heavily on the Monday night uh, TV programs, uh-huh. and one of them was live and the other one wasn't. And I was telling my fiance this the other night, and I'm not a hundred percent on like what it was, but I'm pretty sure. They came out, I think it was WCW and ruined the whole WWF show <laughs> because it was taped earlier yeah. and they they knew what it was.
0: Right. Yeah. Um it actually <laughs> is one of the precipitating events that uh that 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 ruined WCW uh once and for all, or it started it started their decline because ah. WCW was leading in the ratings. Um I'm a nerd, so I know this they uh, they were basically for 83 weeks they had crushed uh, WWF's uh, Monday Night Raw program. Um, and they basically because Nitro WCW's program was live, they they started to take cheap shots at Raw, which was taped where they would they would spoil their endings on live TV. Like don't switch over to the other channel because this is what's happening over there right but because of their arrogance their cavalierness maybe they had basically said one day on nitro like don't turn don't switch over to to monday night raw because mankind is gonna win the world championship and then every kid including me was like what the fuck like mick foley's gonna win the title click and everyone switched over and then that was when um monday night raw started to take off was was because shit like that was happening you know which is way more exciting
1: Oh man, I loved that rivalry. I think like the rivalry helped both of them, like you know, having that competition. Okay, I'm excited to talk to you about this stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. How did the show start? Where? Where? How long had you been thinking about it? Like, how did it get off the ground? Like, were you were at Vice already, obviously, and then? did you have access to how did this work
0: so my best friend jason eisner who who uh makes the show with me we we created the show together and he's a film director he's made a he he made a movie called hobo with a shotgun and he's a really 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 good friend of mine and at the time we had just kind of both got back into wrestling in a big way Hmm. this is brought around like 2015 2016 we were just really, you know, back into wrestling. And I was their advice, and I really wanted to do something with my obsession with it. I wanted to, I, I, I just knew there was like a doc to be made or some story. I just didn't know how big or whatever it was going to be.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I actually tried to get a couple of different wrestling documentaries off the ground with Vice, but it just like access wasn't there or it was like too expensive or something. And mm-hmm. so then, um, At the same time, Jason and I got really obsessed with these things called shoot interviews, which is basically, for those that don't know, they're, like, essentially just, like, really lo-fi interviews with wrestlers, usually, like, in a Radisson hotel room, uh, shot on a camcorder, you know, (laughs) and you can see a lot of them on YouTube, Mm -hmm. and we just got obsessed with them because... You know, here are these wrestlers kind of telling you the behind the scenes, real stories, behind things, crazy road stories, things that are just like would put like a Motley crew to shame. You know, just like right. wild, wild stories. But yet these guys are incredible storytellers as well because they're performers and they know how to talk. So it was like we just kept passing them back and forth. And then somehow we got on this path of researching uh, shoot interviews on the subject of the murder of Bruiser Brody. And Bruiser Brody was this wrestler who was a little bit before our time, but um, he was this just mythical, like, <laughs> huge, uh, really captivating, enthralling, um, wild Texas, like, like kind of wild man Texan who would come out swinging a chain to, uh, like, he would come out, like, to, like, Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song and just, like, swing chains into the crowd. It's, like, one of the coolest things you can possibly see. And so yeah. we got really in into that, just, like, from, like, a metal point of view you know and then and then uh when you research kind of the way he passed away it was like super tragic he actually was killed by another wrestler in 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 a locker room confrontation gone sideways this 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 other wrestler stabbed him in the shower and um be basically because he didn't get medical assistance fast enough he actually bled out and he, he passed away and it was this crazy story of like essentially a murder story in the in a wrestling locker room, and it just really seemed like this kind of um, ripe for rediscovery type thing. Um, and there was another aspect to the story that was fascinating to us, which was this this case actually went to trial, and the guy that stabbed Bruiser Brody essentially got off because the jury um, was was. Was shown footage of Brody being this menace, you know, being this heel character, this crazy, evil kind of villainous brute, and they kind of took his because wrestling hadn't been fully established as something that wasn't a hundred percent legitimate. That they kind of took his character as who he really was in real life as this menacing guy, and so then the you know Brody's attacker basically got off on self-defense. And so it was like this weird thing where you're like looking at how the wrestling world, the scripted fantasy world of wrestling, is kind of now intertwined with this like you know homicide story. So we felt like that was kind of like like this is a story to tell, and it really could be like its own just standalone doc feature length thing. And uh, we started pitching it around advice, and obviously it just was too big. It was like an ambitious real film that we wanted to make. Um, and then right around that time vice had launched their their uh, TV channel viceland and they were like we want to hear everyone's pitches for TV shows and you know it was kind of like a challenge to people like you know and so we kind of took it to heart and I, I put it together and I thought this would could be like a really compelling hour and a half or whatever of television this this story and um, it just kind of evolved from there like you know mm-hmm. I, I must have pitched the show, half a dozen times or more to different folks there and then it kind of was like well could this be a series could there be other stories and then it was like yeah there's no shortage of crazy stories in this world so then we started to put that together and show them that and then we started to kind of figure out like what would the show look like and what would it sound like one of the films that is really influential to jason and i is this documentary from the 80s called the thin blue line by errol morris which is this like just you know Benchmark true crime documentary film, and it's like impeccable style. It's the coolest. It has this Philip Glass score that kind of sets the whole pacing and momentum of the show. It draws you in. All the reenactments are like super noir, impressionistic, really, really, really well done. And we just kind of wanted to make the thin blue line version of the wrestling world, was like the idea, like this kind of Uh. unsolved mysteries. (laughs) meets the thin blue line and do it in the wrestling world and because these stories are so crazy and one thing that was important to us too is that it doesn't have to be about wrestling it's more about like the human side of this world like the the actual people and the consequences and the families and everyone that has to deal with all of this you know Um, and so we put it together and then you know after a lot of salesmanship and you know convincing and all that stuff we um we were greenlit or sorry we we were greenlit to do a pilot and so we did the Bruiser Brody story as an hour long pilot in uh, 2017 and that was the first step and then uh after that finished we were given the opportunity to do a full season which we did um we shot in 2018 most of the year and that aired uh in 2019 last year
1: it's amazing what were some of the biggest challenges in those beginning stages? Like when you were doing Brody, he obviously was already dead. So right. telling that story with people that wanted to talk about it and then uh, uh, that were alive, obviously, but uh, mm-hmm. like was part of the reason the guy got off uh, that it was in Mexico as well? Like that. It was in Puerto you know, Rico. Yeah. Oh, Puerto Rico. Okay. My bad. Um, but yeah, like it just seemed like. To me, I'm like, how the fuck did this guy get off?
0: Well, I think, you know, uh, part of it is, was also kind of a, uh, it it was a fascinating reason to just look at the story in general, right? Um, Uh Because there were people who were there, like in the locker room, but the incident occurred in the shower. And so there wasn't any real...
1: Witnesses,
0: like firsthand eyewitnesses of the knife going into him. You know what I'm saying? Right. It was all that, just that, right? That aftermath. And then the other part of it was, which is maybe a shady aspect to the story, is that you know um, the Tony Atlas, you know, who's a famous wrestler from the 70s and the 80s, who who was there the moment right before it happened and the moment right after it happened, and and he was the one that really tried to save Brody's life. Um, he went back to the States or he went back to the mainland after, after that happened and he was never called to testify into the trial. So his testimony never entered into that trial whatsoever. And same same with Dutch Mantel, who was another person who was present in that locker room for everything leading up to and after. And so right. so I think that has something to do with it. And again, I, I do think what I was saying earlier about how like a jury was presented his wrestling character as who he really was in real life. And that must have had an influence because he was a menacing-looking dude. Yeah, he was
1: like the guy from Game of Thrones, Khaleesi's dude. (laughs) Yeah, totally.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like this big, like, like Texan Viking hybrid you know, guy, and, like, yeah, I mean, when you see him come out to the ring, people just part, like, the seas, you know? For sure. They just, like, you know, he's just an intimidating guy. He's
1: huge, too. And he was known to go into the stands and just
0: go crazy. Oh, yeah, and it wasn't unusual for, when he's swinging that chain with immigrant song blaring, it wasn't unusual for that chain to just hit someone in the head accidentally (laughs) either, you know, so... But then again, you know, he's also a dad and, you know, he's a very grounded sort of family guy and he understood the business really well. He understood that if I am this crazy person and I'm this unbeatable force, then I will make money that makes money. And so, um, but yeah, so we just thought it had like all the recipe of a compelling story outside of the wrestling world. And, you know, I think the, the, the big challenges were you know, because we hadn't proven ourselves at all in this world, we had no credibility in this world was kind of earning the trust of not only just the family who had never appeared on camera before ever, but also just wrestlers who are, I think, by nature, skeptical of an outsider or skeptical of a media company, nonetheless. And it was just kind of like, you know, proving that we kind of knew this world, and we had their best interests in mind. And we're not looking to like, do a hit piece on wrestling or their careers or whatever
1: right yeah that's what i was wondering is like in the beginning like you don't really have a resume for this kind of thing Mm -hmm. and this is kind of i mean it's in a way it's like hell's angels it's like this isolated world that these guys you know take very seriously and a lot of it is private and so to dive into it seems very tricky
0: it was. And um, I, we didn't plan it this way. It just kind of happened. But, you know, it, it took, it definitely took us about six to, it took us maybe like six to eight months to get the green light from Vice. It was a lot of like, you know, you would kind of get past this one hurdle and then there'd be another hurdle. And then like you kind of mm-hmm. had to keep going and going and going to get the money and to, to do it. But along that whole process, that six to eight month period, or whatever it was, like we had worked on developing the relationships with, the the five people that appear in the episode and and we're just so thankful to bruiser brody's family for believing in us because that was really kind of where our credibility started where we could really kind of go around and say to other wrestlers like hey you know, Brody's family is on board with this and we're doing it f- kind of, you know, for them. And that became kind of the, gave them an Im- more of an impetus to do it. And then once we got to doing season one, for example, like doing the rest of the episodes when we were doing like the Montreal Screwjob episode with Bret Hart, you know, it's like, Bret's like, oh, like I've already told this story. Like, am I going to tell it again? And I was like, well, look, like, you know, we did this whole thing about Bruiser Brody and then Bruiser Brody really became our calling card because all the guys respect brody and his family and what happened to him like he's like this really legit type figure in in this world and so it really was because of that that a lot of people began to uh trust us because we had done this story about this very you know sad tragedy that happened but also someone that holds a lot of weight in this community
1: right how difficult is it getting the archival footage? Um, you have to get clearance for that stuff, obviously right?
0: Well, it depends what it is um, obviously, you know our show doesn't have any working relationship with the w w e um, you know we we look at it as a journalistic you know type piece so there are there are you know so so you are able to fair use footage to illustrate certain points. And, um, I think that would be the only way that the show could probably exist. I don't think you could do it with a actual working relationship with that company. Um, and so that's the approach we took with the archival, with any of their archival, all the other archival in the footage, the Japanese footage or any other home video family stuff or from photographers or anything else. That's all just stuff we have to track down and license and, and do that. And it's a hefty job. It really is. Um, Uh, but it's, it's a huge part of the show. And, um, and yeah, and so it's just checking those boxes.
1: Okay. Like obviously you got uh Brody's family kinda to legitimize that episode, but what wrestlers or people from the wrestling world were in the initial supporting cast?
0: for the Brody episode or like season 1
1: or just period like who were mm. some of the people you talked to early on oh. to like get on board with you guys that you're like oh this guy's going to help us and he, sure. he's got our back
0: Yeah so um when we started working on um season 1 like in full force like some of the folks that we that really kind of were early supporters and 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 were cool with us uh first we got um a fellow named Bruce Pritchard who um was a man behind the scenes he was he worked for the company for for wwf for over 20 years and um as a producer and as uh you know one of the key creative guys over there he also played the character brother love if you remember that character and yeah. he he was a guy who's just one of those guys who's been there for so many of these you know moments in the company's history all the way from like you know i think the late 80s through to the like 2008 or something so he was a wealth of knowledge and also knew a ton of people and helped us a lot in the early days. Um, you know, Jake the snake Roberts was somebody that we interviewed early on for the show. Just incredible storyteller, incredible presence on camera. Um, Scott Hall, AKA Razor Ramon was a guy that we also, um, interviewed early on. And, and again, someone who also just really truly looked up to Bruiser Brody, um, as, 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 you know, early on in his career. And so that was, that bought us that credibility there. Um mm-hmm. Brett Hart, you know, um came aboard to do the Montreal um, episode. And yeah, those are some of the kind of big names that we had in, in season one to kind of help us, you know, and then of course some deeper cut names we had, you know, Kevin Von Erich uh, in, in doing the story about the Von Erich family, which is one of my favorite yeah. episodes we've ever done. Yeah. Heavy. And, it was super heavy yeah and again another another person who um was close with Brody and just you know again it was like <laughs> it was so funny cuz when we were filming the interview with Kevin for the Von Eric episode um he was it's obviously such a heavy story about you know this family that's survived so much um unrelenting tragedy and the first t- couple times we were doing interviews with him it was hard i think to to like ha- to get all the details and to have him go through it and relive all this stuff and right. it wasn't really until we showed him the trailer that we had just cut for the Brody episode and he's like, oh, this is just like Thin Blue Line. <laughs> and I was
1: like, what? No way.
0: How do you know that? And, uh, hey, you're
1: doing a good job. And
0: then it was like, okay, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And he's like, oh, okay. And that actually helped in a lot of ways. So it was cool. Oh,
1: that's right. How did um, Jericho become the narrator? Mm-hmm. How did that work out?
0: So when we started working on season two, we had a little bit of a surprise um, <laughs> waiting for us. Which we, didn't, we weren't hip to at the time, but when we, when we signed on for season two, Vice uh, shared with us that the show is set up different financially. Um, and uh, where it, it had been an American, fully American production for season one, it was now going to be a Canadian production for season two, um, hmm. in which there were tax credit implications. And one of the implications that we needed to, I guess, address was that we needed to have a Canadian narrator to be like the voice of the show um and for us it was a little bit at first it was like we were bummed out because our season one narrator dutch mantel we just loved you know we loved his voice and loved working with him and and we just didn't know who we would get which canadian we would get to replace him right and we kind of had we had to essentially was the order that was given so we looked at we started at the top of the list (laughs) you know and Um, uh bret hart well (laughs) <laughs> well I mean you know Brett would have been cool but Brett it's kind of a a, a a bummer story that you know Brett was not a fan of the episode that we did on him um, which is oh. un, which was unfortunate he's actually um, one of a very small few who wasn't happy with the with the final product and I never fully understood why I'd like to have a sit down and figure it out. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, he wasn't keen on it, so we knew that Brett probably wouldn't be an option. But we were starting to put together the plans for the Chris Benoit episodes of the show. And um, we had just been introduced to Chris Jericho to be a subject uh, on that episode, and uh, which he um, graciously, you know, um, he was a big fan of season one, so he knew that once we explained to him our approach with the story and how we were going to handle it, and and because we had done season one that he that he um began to trust us with that and so he gave us some time to do an interview with him and then we were at his house in tampa and we basically were just like hey uh because you know chris jericho being also a canadian citizen uh would you want to narrate the the show (laughs) he was like yeah that'd be cool and it was just like that was pretty much it and then you know we made a deal and it was super easy and he was he was super cool to work with and uh You know, got really involved in all the stories that we were telling. And it was a really fun process, actually, recording the voiceover with him. Um, The COVID situation made it a little more difficult. Um, We had to do it remotely. But in the beginning, before everything happened, we got to actually go down to Florida and record it with him in a studio. But every time we would record with him, as he'd be looking at, like, the reference video as he's laying in the, the voiceover almost after every line, he'd have like a, he'd have like a cool story to tell about what was on screen, Mm, you know, and some anecdote (laughs) just to drop like that guy's full of shit, you know, or like, you know, that's, you know, well, let me tell you about this guy or let me tell you about this. And that was super fun always. And um, so we had just a fun time working with him. And then he got really, you know, he was very passionate about the Owen Hart episode, which just aired last night. And, um, you know, Owen meant a lot to him. And, um, so he was very involved and, you know, he wanted to see cuts of the episode earlier and, you know, he he gave us some great ideas for it too, which we implemented and yeah, he was just really, really, really just cool, cool guy to work with.
1: Yeah, and he probably helps a little bit with connections. He's he's really connected to a lot of people that maybe could help in future episodes. Oh yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, it's it's awesome. Like it's it's super cool. Like that he's a supporter because he's like he's always like, let me know if you want to brainstorm season three. You know, <laughs> it's like, Rad. and so we've like we texted back and forth like different you know episode ideas, and he's he's right on the money. He's he knows he's got some good ideas for sure.
1: Has he tried to get his band into the soundtrack? (laughs) Not yet, not yet. (laughs) Um, These episodes weren't done before the COVID.
0: No, 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 no. Wow. No, yeah. Kind of on the fly. It was crazy. Um, This 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 last season has been nuts. Like it was it was kind of like doing a season two had a caveat which was like, can you do this insane schedule? And uh, uh. we just said, sure, you know. And basically what it was is that we we made 10 hours of this show in um, around about the same amount of time we made six last year. We were delivering them to air, like as they were basically airing. So a week before each episode would air, they would be sent off to the network. So we were just kind of finishing them as the clock was getting shorter and then we filmed the last frame of Owen Hart reenactments. I think it was in the first week of March. It was literally two days before all of Ontario where we shot the whole, where our offices are. It was about two days before all of Ontario shot, uh, like actually shut down. So we just, just made it right before. Oh, I, we're probably the last production.
1: I was curious about, too, when you guys are doing these interviews, the difference between, like, honesty from a human versus the character that you're interviewing (laughs) and maybe trying Mm -hmm. to you know like uh new jack for example he was Mm -hmm. kind of in character the whole time probably versus uh somebody like b brian blair i think maybe was a little more kind of from the heart as like a human being um yeah and just kind of being able to say like in the back of your mind is this guy like fucking with me or is he telling the truth
0: yeah I mean that's always uh, a thing that's always a thing in making the show Uh, in in terms of like where do you draw the line like you know in in the wrestling business they call it you know being worked by somebody and it's kind of like you know when are you being worked and I think over the course of the 16 episodes that we've done on the show now like Jason and I our like worked radar is like uh, pretty honed, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> at this point. Yeah. And depending on how intimidated we are by said wrestler, uh, will we push? Uh, <laughs> you know, but I think, I think it is something that we want always wanted to lean into with the show, because um, that was something that was always present in those shoot interviews. Was like when you'd watch them, you you would watch, you know, this person you know, would be kind of caught up in their own character or giving you the answer that their character would give and not who they were, the human. And sometimes maybe that person has fully turned on that switch and it can never be turned off again. And, Mm -hmm. you know, which if you look at someone like a Randy Savage or a Ric Flair, like there is no, that switch is permanently, was stuck on, you know. And so for us, it's just an aspect of the wrestling world that's interesting and that we always try to lean into. So whenever there's disparity in fact or disparity in, you know, something like that, we tend to usually lean into it and to kind of examine it as its own separate layer of truth, you know, in this wild <laughs> world.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, especially with wrestling where it is such a, you know, it's a it's a tricky line between what's real, what's not real, what's storyline and all that stuff and Mm -hmm. then to have these guys talking about it you're like I don't know how much comments you uh indulge in but definitely there's lots of people with opinions these
0: days oh my lord
1: it's insane like the Owen Hart one last night um Mm -hmm. I went online just to check out what people were saying and it was like it was pretty mind-blowing to see like how just like home team guy they, some of these people feel like, oh, and forever, <laughs> fuck this lady. Like, yeah. what's she doing? Wrestling. It's yeah, like yeah. no brain people yeah. talking about insane <laughs> yeah. things after you just watch this heartfelt thing. Yeah. And you're still yeah. just like, go Niners. It's yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. The fuck?
0: Yeah, and you usually then you know click on their profiles and you see thirteen <laughs> followers and
2: yeah.
0: you know they're yeah. yeah it's you know and it's it's always you know the the white dudes you know but right. the thing is that that episode is like especially the Owen Hart episode is very personal I got it, 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 for me because you know I was watching that pay per view when it happened you know when 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 Owen passed away and and I'll yeah, never same. forget oh yeah yeah and i'll i will never forget just how surreal it was because again wrestling was still not a thing that they ever showed you the fourth wall and mm-hmm. that really was kind of the first time and so that was eerie on top of the tragedy and then of course the tragedy just being this thing that, of course it escalated in the media and it was just like what this isn't i, I can't even believe this and then um because for me like I always kind of looked up to him because my dad's name is Owen and the only Mm -hmm. other Owen that I knew, you know, was Mm -hmm. Owen Hart, you know? And so I always just had an affection for him, you know, growing up as a kid. And, um, and so after that, and of course the next day at school was, was everyone was in mourning, you know, it was, it was, it was rough. Um, but that episode for me was like, I was just talking about this earlier today is going into it. Like when we first started Trying to put this episode together and trying to tell this story, because um, we knew, like, if you are going to do a show called Dark Side of the Ring and you are going to explore controversial stories in the wrestling, I mean, you can't ignore the Owen Hart tragedy. It's just, it's one of the biggest ones, for sure. But my knowledge of what actually took place that night, um, you know, for years and years and years, all the way up until about mid last year, because mid last year was his was the 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 twentieth anniversary. Uh, and there was new articles coming out, new podcasts. People were diving into, you know, reading Martha's book and kind of sh- finally sharing her perspective, which, you know, the WWE had kind of dominated the sort of narrative of what took place. And I feel like fans had kind of subscribed to that belief because that, that was the prevailing sort of narrative, which was that this is just this freak accident and, you know, it, it, this whole thing. Like, once you look at it much closer... You know, you really realize that there's a lot more at play here. There's a lot more negligence that kind of went into this. Um, and, of course, all of the aftermath of it, too, is is just dates so poorly, you know. <laughs> oh. For me, it was like reading Martha's book, and it was like, wow, this point of view has not been out there. Like, unless you are a hardcore, you know, a fan reading all the wrestling zines, essentially, newsletters and wrestling zines, and also... Or if you had purchased and read her book, would you really know the real other side of the story? Um, and so for me, it was a huge eye-opening experience last year when all these new articles and podcasts were coming out. And I was like, oh, wow. Because at first, I was like, well, should we dig up these old wounds to do uh, to do a story about this freak accident? And uh-huh. then as soon as I started to understand that there was much more to the story, I was like, wow, this is a perspective. Because for some reason, wrestling fans have always had this grudge, this like... Right. Unfounded grudge against Martha Hart's wishes to not have him inducted in the Hall of Fame. It's almost like they kind of believe this narrative that um, Martha uh, wants to bury his wrestling career because she's mad at wrestling, which is not not the case at all. I can tell you from spending so much time with her and talking about Owen's legacy and his matches and everything that she doesn't hold wrestling accountable it's you know she just holds these specific people accountable (laughs) who are negligent in the safety of this stunt you know and therefore that company should not be allowed to further you know make money on his name and that is the most reasonable thing i've ever heard in my entire life (laughs) um and so uh so so for us it was kind of you know that made sense to me And I felt like it just, just seeing her being kind of, you know, all this, this vitriol for her out there among the wrestling community. I was like, this is just so wrong. And I, I I really wanted to help bring that to light as much as I could, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: Right. And then is it true that there is no existing, like there's not a location for this Hall of Fame. It's kind of a joke, right? Like, yeah, it's well, like a big party that they honor these guys, but there's nowhere you can go like baseball, like Cooperstown Hall of Fame. There's no Hall of yeah. Fame. There's no location for the wrestling to pay tribute or anything. No, 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 no. So it's, yeah. in her mind, she's like, why am I going to give these guys a reason to make more money off right. th- my dead husband who they kind of were instrumental in him dying.
0: Oh, of course. Yeah. And So, and,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah. not to spoil it, but um, Owen Hart died at a pay-per-view. I, I don't know if we exactly we explained didn't. this, but he yeah. fell from the rafters, which was probably 80... To, 85 feet, yeah. 85 feet. He fell into the ring. He pretty much died, like, I would say, semi-instantly. They mm-hmm. rushed to him, and so the show must go on is never been more evident than vince Mm. mcmahon saying we're doing this pay-per-view and we're finishing the whole thing which was shocking and jim ross the announcer had to announce on the live pay-per-view that this wrestler who was a close friend to him had just died right there from falling Mm -hmm. um fast forward to last night's episode where you go in depth in detail on it and they show the fucking little, yeah. uh, what are the, the little hook <laughs> the that's clip, holding yeah. him? It's supposed to be a, um, what are those things? Carabiner, right? It's yeah. supposed to be this huge, heavy-duty carabiner, but with it's a locking it's mechanism, this yeah. Small one that kind of releases with pressure, apparently, and uh, just. Everyone should go watch this episode for sure. I don't want to ruin it too much, but uh, yeah, it was really eye-opening for me to just be like, I mean, the wife and the kids are up in the rafters looking at where he fell from and stuff. It was pretty, it was amazing. You guys did a a really good job covering it and uh, kind of giving, like you said, some new insight to like something other than vince mcmahon's controlled uh you know i heard too that when they went to court he wanted to move it from Mm -hmm. because it happened in kansas city but Mm -hmm. he wanted to move it from missouri to connecticut for some reason
0: because yeah you can't uh, award imputative damages in connecticut and um they argued that because owen's contract was made or something in connecticut because that's where wwe is based um so then of course his attorneys turned around and sued Martha for that. <laughs> wow. Which is crazy. Um yeah. and even I think it was uh, two days ago on Monday when a lot of the press was hitting for the episode, uh one of WWE's longtime um lawyers uh commented on one of the articles in one of the articles and he basically was saying that, you know, uh Martha You know, she's never been interested in finding out the facts of what happened that night. She only wants to, you know, to basically cause harm to the sport that she, you know, never wished her husband to be in. I'm paraphrasing. And it's just like, again, it's like perpetuating that narrative, you know, of here's someone who just wants to attack wrestling. It's very Trumpian, actually, in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, this is, of course, before the episode airs. And then, like, how could you say that? when you see the scene in the episode where she's up in the rafters with her children retracing the final steps that her husband took. Like nobody else wanted to find out more what happened than she did.
1: It's crazy. Yeah, and and those police photos, like this never came to my mind until I saw the police photos. There was blood in the ring from the fall and they still wrestled after that. These guys are wrestling in a ring that some dude that just died, his blood is on the mat.
0: Yeah, it's
1: it's almost insane to me. I yeah. was like, wow.
0: It's one of the most disturbing aspects of the whole s- season is uh-huh. the idea that, you know, you know, wrestling rings are, are essentially a small amount of padding on top of plywood basically, like thick plywood. And so, right. you know, his fall broke one of the the like wooden boards like underneath the ring, and so the ring has like a like a divot in it. And so these guys are going out there to wrestle thinking about Trying to stay in character, which is another crazy thing. And then yeah. realizing that their friend of X amount of years, you know, like died right here. Now I have to like slam this guy on it. Like it's crazy.
1: Right. So I got to ask the glaring, obvious thing is you did the Montreal screw job on Bret Hart, who is nowhere to be seen in this episode. I think I know why, but. Could you explain why no, none of the Hart family is in there to kind of combat? I, I believe that they look at this differently than, than Martha, uh, Owen's wife. But mm-hmm. I've heard a whole bunch of different rumors. If yeah. Maybe you know more. But from what I heard, Brett was... He's in touch with um, Owen's son and they have a relationship, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with Martha, maybe, or I, I don't know.
0: No, I mean, it's, it's, it's very complicated uh, in terms of just the relationship uh, with the, Martha's family and the Hart family um some some of the i mean i think they're all like if they were to see each other in you know calgary's not that big if they see each other in person they're always cordial um but you know there's a difference of philosophy when it comes to this i think um oh they and, all
1: live in the same town
0: yeah they're all just in calgary um oh, wow. but for the most part i mean maybe some of them don't but i think a lot of them do and uh-huh. um you know there there's definitely a, a difference of opinion in terms of some some issues Um, I think the legal battle was very messy between everybody. And, um, you know, um, I think Martha was looking for support in this. And I think it was something that was very tough for a lot of the family members who, you know, are also looking out for their careers and their future opportunities. And I think, um, you know, there was uh, some trust issues that were broken during the lawsuit Mm -hmm. that I don't know if they'll ever be repaired with some members you know, faxing her documents, as she said, to, to you know, the to Vince's attorneys. And so they knew well ahead of time what their legal strategy was going to be. Oh, um, and so, it, yeah, it's it's a whole nother tragic side of the story is the whole fallout of the Hart family, um, right. who's really like the first family of wrestling in a lot of ways. Yeah. The thing is, is obviously like, you know, Brett, because, you know, their careers are so connected, Owens and Brett's, and Brett being the star that he that he is and was, and you know, was somebody that we really wanted to have in the show, you know, because Brett's been on the show before, and because you know, I think he would have been a a, a good middle ground voice uh, between Martha's side and the rest of the family side. It just was, you know, I think, I'm I'm guessing, I don't know, but because that he wasn't a fan mm-hmm. of our show and he wasn't mm-hmm. a fan of this episode we did about him, that he mm-hmm. just never returned any of the reach-outs that we did. And then when he didn't, it was kind of like, okay, and I sort of felt like this is kind of Martha's story, you know, and I wanted it to be Martha, Oge, and Athena's story, you know, because mm-hmm. for sure. so long they haven't had that opportunity, you know, again, mm-hmm. unless you're really paying attention or you're, you bought the book, like you wouldn't know. And I, right. and, and I felt like, you know, and we only get the 44 minutes to tell the story. And I felt like, you know, let's just move ahead with this.
1: Uh-huh. So there's Jim, the anvil Nightheart Who's like the brother-in-law. There's He's passed Brett on. Hart. Yeah. Oh, he is. Yeah. Oh, wow. So Brett's kind of the, the main holder for the family now.
0: I would say, I mean, you have, um, you know, Bruce Hart, some of the other brothers who, you know, were involved in the family business. Um, And then he has other brothers, too, that did uh, that that wrestled at times, but also were firemen. And and then, you know, he does have the brother in laws, but a lot of them have passed on. I mean, British Bulldog has passed on. Jim Neidhart has passed on. You know, yeah, it's a brutal. uh, A lot has happened to that family and, you know, a lot of tragedy.
1: Okay, so I got I got my theory here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ready? Yeah. So you're saying Bret Hart doesn't return calls. He doesn't seem to like the Montreal Screwjob episode too much. I don't think so. My initial reaction to that is one of my questions, which was going to be for you, which okay. is what what is your opinion on the Montreal Screwjob? <laughs> do you think he was in on it or do you think it was real? Uh, it's funny. Here's what I think. When Scott Hall, a wrestler who's pretty fucking, cr- like, he's a crazy dude, but he's a big time name. He says on your show, he thinks Brett was in on it. Yeah. Like, that might rub Brett wrong.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, I think the inclusion of some of the people that were on that episode. Honestly, and this is not a slight of Brett, but I honestly think that I don't even know if Brett would have liked the show if it wasn't just Brett Hart being interviewed, <laughs> mm. but, or maybe Brett Hart and like Dave Meltzer and a couple other people just like facts, 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 you know? Right. Um, and our show's never really been about j- just facts, 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 you know? Um, that's not my opinion of documentary filmmaking, not to get uh-huh. like pretentious. Um, it's kind of goes to that. What we were talking about with, you know, examining the line between, you know, the real person and the persona, And um, one of the things, the reason why we wanted to do the Montreal Screwjob episode in season one is because it really is this perfect meeting of, uh, you know, a wrestling storyline and a real life situation colliding and and unfolding on live television. Um, And to me, it's fascinating to look at because it's such a precipitating event in wrestling history. It's one of the first main things that like occurred that really made more people tune in they 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 started realizing that the behind the scenes stories are sometimes more interesting than what's happening in the ring you know absolutely um and so we wanted to look at it from almost a a bird's eye view you know and i remember having lunch with scott hall one day (laughs) just somewhere and i was like yeah we're doing this montreal screw job episode and he goes oh it's a total work you know (laughs) And it made me laugh, and I was like, "Are you serious? Because how could you believe that?" Well, and I guess I'm burying my own lead here. That I believe it's real. I believe that this, you know, really was a double cross on Brett, and uh-huh. that Brett wasn't in on it. And I know that because, you know, unless unless you know Brett would deserve all the Oscars in the world uh, for, you know, um, feigning right. that level of bitterness, I don't think is possible. Um, especially when you sort of see that. You know how it would unfold with Owen uh, later on, and how that bitterness would would remain uh, with the company. Right. So I think by nature of us entertaining that, and again, it, it goes to conflicts we have with the wrestling community. Sometimes wrestling wrestling fans sometimes can be critical of our show because it's not just like looking at the most hardcore of facts or the most hardcore of new information like we always try to design the shows to be accessible to anyone someone who's not even inundated into wrestling or cares about it or likes it we wanted to make it like accessible to all and so sometimes people will look at the inclusion of that detail of it being something that's a work that's a fascinating aspect for anyone who doesn't know anything about this to know think that this whole orchestrated thing could have been like, or this whole thing could have been orchestrated so mm-hmm. To us, it just kind of speaks to the theme of the show, which is always examining the the gray area and the blurred lines. Mm. And I think that for him, you know, Brett was really looking for, is just always looking for vindication on that story. And, you know, I think it does provide that for him in some ways. I think think you would look at that and you'd see, oh, you know, you could sympathize with his situation. And sometimes you can look at it and say, well, maybe not. You know, and I Mm. think because we're kind of looking at it from these different sides, you have people on there who are criticizing the way that he looks at the championship belt and the way that he looks at that title, you know, and it's someone made you, you didn't become champion, things like that. I mm-hmm. think that is a chip away at him. Um, and that's my personal opinion. And we wanted to make our show different than the other Bret Hart documentary, which is fantastic. It's a amazing film, which is called Wrestling with Shadows, which mm-hmm. which which chronicles in depth uh, his relationship with Vince and that whole situation and, and Bret. Yeah, and I, I think that played a part in it, and it's unfortunate because I do think it does provide sympathy to Brett and his situation at the time, while also kind of just you know showing all different angles of that story. And I and usually the response I get from that episode is a is a wrestling fan saying we don't like I, I've I've heard this to death, to where <laughs> when I hear this story from someone who doesn't know anything about wrestling they're captivated because it is a major moment in wrestling and it's hard to do a wrestling like chronicle and not talk about it.
1: Yeah. Well, I compare wrestling a lot to skateboarding. <laughs> what you talking about Willis? <laughs> it's definitely something that you have passion for and the passion is definitely there for fans and the people involved. And mm-hmm. then um there's a lot of similarities where like you know, there, you know, whatever that guy, uh, what was his name? Eddie Mansfield. I think the guy, (laughs) he, he basically was a narc. He basically came out and told that wrestling wasn't real, but some of his things were like, well, there's, there's no place for these guys after their career. Um, there's nothing to help them. And they put their bodies through all this hell. And then it's like, You know, and we always in skateboarding say skateboarding owes you nothing. But at the end of the day, it's Hmm. like when you drop out of school in like ninth or 10th grade to pursue this whole thing and you find yeah. yourself 40 years old and can barely walk, it's like, yeah. wow, it's you know? Story. And, and I've, I don't know, me and some of the pro skaters, um, we've talked, uh, you know, that are fans of wrestling, we've talked about mm. some of the similarities. It's really interesting, actually, if you dive into some
0: of the things. Oh, I think there's a lot of similarity. Yeah. I think there's a lot of similarity. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, but I don't think you can really do it into your 50s all that well. Right. You know? <laughs> Um, it, especially if you've been doing it all your life, yeah, you know, um, and taking the bumps that you'd take yeah. <laughs> with skateboarding, like you wouldn't wrestling, right? And um, I, I, I obviously like the thing about wrestling that is so fascinating is this concept of the fact that it's existed in along the margins of law <laughs> and everything else, and and like morals because it's it's been a sport that at one time was deemed legitimate and was hidden and its secrets were protected right. you know and i think it's been able to exist for far too long in that gray area because essentially this was a worked thing this was a this was a you know uh a a veiled sport you know uh and the and ever since it's been kind of exposed as you know predetermined and not not 100 percent legitimate even though the injuries are very real and the consequences are even more real um wrestling as a sport should or as a form of entertainment at least if you're going to take out the sport element keep in the entertainment element and you know a lot of these guys the fact that they're not protected um, with health insurance and or with social security or anything is insane right uh, just you know just based on the amount of damage that these guys do to themselves and it's something we see all the time every time we interview one of these guys you know they're they can't walk across the room and you know it's 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 brutal and some of our episodes cover you know the extreme end of you know tragedies based upon you know injury you know so yeah it's it is wild that there's no protective um, net for any of this.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I don't know what's going on these days, but when I was into it, it was definitely making lots of money, you know? like So it just kind of, you know, there. some of those arenas, like those outdoor stadiums were like 90,000 people. <laughs> it's like it was
0: very, very yeah. popular. So, yeah, and that's kind of the disturbing thing about it uh, to me in a way, um, especially... Like, with the, like, Brawl for All episode that we did this season, you know, which is about what happens when wrestlers fight for real. They tried that. Yeah. (laughs) And it ended very poorly with a lot of guys getting fucked up for real. Um, Is it all does, it's just, like, it's it's severe damage to your body. And, I mean, you know... uh, I've taken a couple of slams here and there just out of, like, pure exuberance of being a fan and being like, slam me, you know, or whatever. <laughs> but, like, when you take those, like, when someone really lays it into you and slams you on that ring, it is horrifying. And I've, I've done it a couple times. Like, your head is literally ringing. Like, you get this crazy feeling in your head from being tossed and then like it it really feels like uh being slammed basically on plywood you know the padding don't do shit you know you're, you're really just on like suspension plywood right and and i i just i can't believe these guys do that like, in and out every move it uh, like a top rope move forget it mm-hmm. like when i see someone do it like doing a superplex or like doing like some crazy like splash where they miss mm-hmm. i just like think about my knees and like i can't even i can't It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, that's why, like,
1: Um, a Mick Foley is just, like, you cannot not respect that. Like, it's so fucked.
0: (laughs) It is It is really fucked, yeah. (laughs) Like, Um, jumping off uh, the
1: top of a cage to tax or whatever. It's like...
0: (laughs) But the nicest guy. Literally Uh, the nicest guy. Couldn't be nicer.
1: Okay, so the segue was... I'm going to give full credit to COVID-19 again, because with all this <laughs> downtime, we were, yeah. What me and my fiance decided to start watching a documentary every night. So oh, that's awesome. At the end of this, sh- at, at the end of this, I'd like to get some suggestions from you, but, um, basically Please, I will we somehow swerved into the Mick Foley documentary and I was kind of like, which one
0: beyond the mat, or Yeah.
1: Yeah. Beyond the mat. Exactly. Right. You know, I'm, I'm a closet wrestling fan. I guess not a closet <laughs> wrestling fan anymore, but uh, I, right. I'm kind of looking at her, and she's actually enjoying it. And I had heard about the uh, Vice show, and my brother's a huge wrestling fan, so he he had been telling me, you know, we talk a little bit about podcasts and different things, whatnot but uh i was like well we should try this um show it's supposed (laughs) to be kind of a little dark but like let's you know we can and we the first one we watched we just started watching from the beginning we watched the macho man and elizabeth one nice and i mean i was i I actually have photos of me with elizabeth like i was a huge fan of them and uh The best. And Cheryl, my fiance, she was it didn't give her nightmares. Um she she, (laughs) we we got through it and and then we just we just dove in and we started watching the McFoley one that that uh, documentary got us to your show. And um then mix in your show and I I, I've read his book and like huge fan of him. How was it approaching him? Was he super easy and he seems like a great guy?
0: This is a, a funny story. Um, so yeah, I mean Mick Foley again, uh, godlike status for me as a kid. Right. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, Cactus Jack. Yep. Um, probably my mankind. favorite. <laughs> yeah, mankind. Just oh, I loved. I loved it as a kid. Super huge fan. I've never actually fully admitted to Mick how much he meant to me as a kid because I get too embarrassed. But Ugh. he, um, when we finished the pilot, or when we, were, we were doing the Brody thing. I don't know if we had fully finished it yet. We had this idea, to like, who could narrate this show? Who could narrate the season? And Mick was a guy that was right on our list because, you know, I, lo- I loved him as a kid. I thought he has a great voice, and he gives, he lends a lot of credibility, you know, mm. if you get someone like him. And so this is a true story. Mm. I was um, at home, and I saw on, like, social media that he was going to be signing autographs at an action figure store, like, within five miles um and i was just like you know what like i'm gonna do it you know and so i we went to this thing and i deliberately showed up like five minutes before it was over and there wasn't hardly anybody there and i walked into the action figure store which is a place i would be normally (sighs) and he was back there and i just like got this little stupid thing signed that i had and i was like hey uh i'm working on this bruiser brody documentary and he's like oh really and immediately I had his attention again because Brody holds a lot of weight. Right, and he's like, I love him. Like I idolized him. He was like the guy I wanted. I wanted to be the next Bruiser Brody. I was like, Well, we're looking for someone to narrate this show, and he's like, I would really, I I, I and and he also knew Vice, which was thank God. He also had the touch point of knowing what Vice was, so he instantaneously was uh, on board and um and wanted to see it. And so we actually sent him like the earliest. Maybe semi-embarrassing versions of it um, to get him to do it, and then we made the deal with him, and then uh, yeah, and then and then working with him was unbelievable. I can't even put him over enough uh, in terms of the collaborating with him, uh-huh. like because he is an author and he is a writer, and he wrote his books. You know, he's a very skilled writer and he's very good with words, and all the narration we we actually. Uh, wrote out for him he would he he took it home and he rewrote the whole thing himself and put a lot of thought into it and it was so just like earnest in 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 like collaborating you know yeah um and uh, it was amazing it was really 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 cool working with him and um and it was super cool to have him back in season two just for an interview you know but again he was just uh, amazing to work with
1: Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. Him and Cornette to us are kind of like, I mean, Jim Cornette, you've been to his house? Many times. Like, yeah. describe that Five place. It's basically a wrestling museum, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. We always joke that it's our favorite spot on the road. Uh-huh. Um, every time, because we usually are coming off of like a, a couple of weeks on the road and then we finally get to Louisville. And um We can, we know we can just chill, like you know, uh, because his place is so comfortable. Uh, Him and his wife are both just so fantastic, so good to us. And um, and then of course I just immediately march upstairs and start, you know, thumbing through things and looking through things. And he just he has everything, like not only just wrestling stuff, but he has like this impeccable true crime paperback collection that's like I'm jealous of. Wow, you know, and like yeah, he's 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 the best. And his wife, you know, collects movies and horror movies and. Yeah, they're just it's just awesome. It's like a it's like the coolest place to be. And so, it's always our favorite stop. Like you can't you can't beat it. Like there there's a reason he's in the show a lot. It might be in part because he's knowledgeable and he's great on camera. That's probably most of it. But there's a little part of it too where it's like we just want to keep going back to that house.
1: Well, yeah. And then on top of that, like his passion is undeniable he's I mean of course you want to call him like a nerd or something of wrestling like (laughs) but the way he kind of breathes wrestling and sticks up for it you can just see how this matters so
0: much to him exactly and that's kind of a very it's a very important thing he speaks about wrestling in a way that I feel like is intoxicating like it's very kinetic like he's able to get you if you don't care about wrestling he draws you in and he makes you understand it Mm. and care about it and feel like it's really uh, like a priority you know which i think is amazing he talks about like these events in wrestling as if it's the most significant thing that's happened in human history (laughs) which i love
1: (laughs) exactly it's a great way to put that
0: hey evan uh hold up for a minute and let's
1: hear from some of our friends And we'll be right back. All right, everybody. We have our first ever giveaway on the podcast. One of our very generous listeners has said he will provide the winner with a choice of the new wrestling vinyl album, a Dark Side of the Ring t-shirt, or anything off the Talkin' Schmidt website. So here it goes. All right. Get ready. Get ready. What we are looking for is the best wrestling name that does not exist. The best wrestling name that does not already exist. Write it down in an email and send it to TalkinSchmidt at gmail.com with the subject line free shit. And... I will pick the best one, so it's subjective, but I'll be picking one and announce it on the show next week. We'll get your pick on what you want to win and send it out immediately. That's TalkinSchmidt at gmail.com, best wrestling name, and yes, we are gonna be doing giveaways here and there, apparently. Hey, it's Matt D. at DLX Skate Shop, 1831 Market at Guerrero, as in Tommy. Come see us, real, anti-hero, crooked, thunder, venture, spitfire. We are here every day of the week except the big holidays. We've got a curb, and we've got smiles on our faces. Come let us get you stoked. Did you get any threats or heat from digging up any of these stories? <sighs> um,
0: sometimes. Yeah. I've talked about it a couple times before. I'll give you one for each season. Okay. So season one, we did an episode uh, about Gino Hernandez. Um, And for those who aren't familiar, he's a super deep cut wrestler. And he's a guy that died way before his time. Uh, And he died under what I would call mysterious circumstances. Uh, It was ruled as being a drug overdose, but for 30 years, family members and friends essentially felt it was actually a homicide um, because he was involved with some shady criminal folks. Mm -hmm. Um, And that episode for us felt like... That's still, I think, uh, out of all the 16 episodes, uh, felt like the one where we really were um, in uncharted waters. (laughs) Mm. Because I did do interviews with people off the record. I did uh, have like uh, no camera tape recorded interviews we did for those shows where we had to obscure people's voices. I had to meet people at bizarre rendezvous points to discuss <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> uh, this because it involved to, you know, it, it involved some folks who were part of a uh, basically a cocaine operation uh-huh. uh, in the eighties. And some of which, you know, who flipped people who flipped and put other people away and, things like that. And so it was a it was a wild uh, experience. And that kind of felt like there were some twists and turns along with that story where we kind of needed to feel like we needed to tread a little lightly into where we were going because it obviously was becoming something much bigger than wrestling. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so there was that experience. And we got especially freaked out doing that episode because we were just about to interview – gino hernandez's mother who is still living and um about you know her son's mysterious death and uh, the night before we did the interview at about two in the morning our our like rental car like alarm was going off it was like crazy it was like you know just lighting up the whole neighborhood and i was like oh my god and so i busted into my you know to into jason's room and i was like dude are you sleeping on the keys you know or something like uh, i don't know what the hell i was thinking <laughs> and so and then we, we shut off the car alarm and then we went back to sleep and then uh about five minutes later it went off again and then you know being from new york i was like oh, okay wait a minute something else is going on here and we went outside and actually saw that somebody was inside the car trying to steal the car like in this nice suburban neighborhood and we got really freaked out we eventually like got the guy out of the car and told him to take a hike you know um, but we, in the middle of the night, this guy was trying to steal our car. And, you know, when, when you're this involved in this type of a story, you're kind of like, oh shit, like what, <laughs> what the hell is happening to us? You know? Um, so that was freaky. Uh, and then the other one is funny. Um, and it involves a fellow named Eddie Mansfield who you brought up earlier. Mm. Um, he, and for those that don't know, Eddie Mansfield was a guy who in the eighties participated in an expose on wrestling on 2020 and he basically agreed as a as a wrestler he was very bitter and discouraged at the time and he agreed to show the tricks of the trade thus exposing the business and pissing off everybody in the industry in one moment and Eddie Mansfield uh, when we first reached out to him we just like we would with anybody else we we articulated that we want to share his side of the story We want to um, show a different perspective on this, and you know, many people for years have, you know, have looked at you as a pariah, and now we want to get your opinion and your point of view. And his response initially was, "If you if you use my name, if you tell my story, um, well, he first he turned it down, but he's like, if you do, uh, you know, tell the story, you know, and if you use my name, I'm going to send people from Brooklyn after you, (laughs) you know." And he was like threatening to like send these, like, you know, nameless thugs from Brooklyn to come, like, beat us up or kill us <laughs> or, or whatever. Oh, wow. It was crazy. Like, it was absolutely insane. And then, uh, you know, being as close as we are to Jim, you know, Jim Cornette, uh, we <laughs> we told him this on camera. I saved it. I said, yeah, uh, we, we tried to interview Eddie Mansfield, but he said, you know, basically, fuck you. And if you use our name, he's going to send his thugs from Brooklyn to come beat us up. And then Jim Cornette just like unleashed this like crazy promo about eddie mansfield where he's like eddie mansfield you threaten the producers of this fine program yeah. you know like i dare you to come down here to louisville and even though we're both senior citizens i'll meet you on broadway and i'll, and I'll fucking kick your ass with a goddamn fucking baseball bat and put you in the goddamn hospital you know or whatever yeah you know and it was like this amazing thing and he's like i'm not saying anyone should kill eddie mansfield i think just you know, I wouldn't mind a full body cast for all of March. You know, <laughs> oh, I wouldn't mind him hooked up to a machine for April. <laughs> you know, <whatever>. That's amazing. <laughs> that was just amazing. I love it. Yeah. yeah. It's just so I love the Venom and, you know, uh, but then eventually we did get Eddie Mansfield <laughs> involved in the project. And then, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, so it's, it's been crazy. Yeah. It's a crazy experience working with these guys, man.
1: You would think that guy would be like on witness protection. Yeah, seriously. So I bet yeah. that guy's had some death threats. Allegedly. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah What's the difference between a longtime wrestling fan and a wrestling historian? <laughs> can I be, apply for wrestling historian status? Sure. Being like since the eighties, I've been watching it. Or like, how's it work? Is that like a nice way of saying a fan, or is that actually a status <laughs> symbol that you achieve?
0: Well, I think um, it, it's 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 that is a good question. There's no um,
1: license or document or anything, right?
0: No, there's no doctorate okay. or thing you can have framed. Yeah, I think I think being being around the business. And, and and being someone that, um, you know, people people would would from within would trust, I guess, okay. to know the ins and outs. Um, I don't know if you can be. I don't know. It's 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 tough to say. I I don't necessarily look at us as wrestling historians making the show. Um, you know uh but it is it is a funny moniker
1: <laughs> yeah we have like uh the master lensman that they give uh status to every guy that holds a camera and skateboarding i'm like dude can you please stop with that <laughs> really yeah that's it, a thing it's, yeah it's like master lensman joe johnson <laughs> or whatever you're just like everyone's a master lensman. all right <laughs> okay so obviously the big question is will there be a season three
0: Yep, the question on everyone's minds. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, we, we literally just finished season two. Um, like we finished the Owen Hart episode like two weeks ago. Damn, um, that's yeah. amazing! And I didn't
1: know that. <laughs> yeah,
0: so we're not like racing to go. You know, get Dive back you know, in. mess up our lives again to do this again. Yeah. But you know, obviously, with the way the world is right now, you know, it it doesn't allow us to. You know safely get on an airplane go into people's homes and film them like we would want to or even have a film set to do reenactments right so we have to kind of wait and see what's going on with the world you know meanwhile we're having conversations with vice i think one of the main things is that you know this season was really tough for us um it basically required us to work 16-hour days non-stop for nine months and we uh didn't get get it just because of the schedule um to really turn around 10 hours of this show in what was ostensibly eight and a half months um was really hard and um i don't think it's something that we can sign up for again in that way and i think that any tv production company would just be like oh you guys you guys nailed it so uh you know more of the same you know uh, and it's just under those circumstances i just can't see our bodies handling that anymore um so we have to you know work out some things and yeah. see see if we can get to an understanding in that regard um uh, just so we can make the show you know and and not kill ourselves to do it um which we did do this time around we actually did so? for real like we're we're changed physically now yeah, it's not just the pounds the 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 poundage
1: this sounds like a a common theme because um and no disrespect to vice at all but um they also did um thrasher magazines king of the roads um, oh yeah and they worked pretty much a similar i remember lauren just saying like this is like the it's grueling like and they're not doing it with a lot of time uh it's kind of a lot of the on the fly almost like i mean you have a week or Very two much. but like the, it, with color correcting and everything that goes into these things that people don't even take into consideration it's pretty stressful and uh i always mm-hmm. kind of wondered about that
0: yeah Yeah, I think, like, you know, also one other aspect to it, too, is that Dark Side of the Ring, and I'm not trying to say we're better than anybody or anything. Mm. It's just that our show is very complicated Mm. from a production standpoint. Um, It's probably not, given the type of shows Advice normally makes, it's not something they've ever done before. They have never done a show that travels all around the country and then um you know does reenactments and then has composers compose original music and because like uh, like a, like ostensibly we're kind of making these feature film documentaries they're more so than just an episode of television you know which you know for vice normally is a like kind of man on the street or a more like reality thing like kings of the road where you can go just shoot the whole thing and you know a couple of weeks or three or four weeks you know like ours is like there's all these different stops and starts and right and and complicated moving pieces uh-huh. um, and so i think that that not fully understanding the complexities of that um it has been uh has been tough on us and of course we we're really we were really um stoked on the uh, response that the, f- that the first season got and we knew that there was a lot left to to there was a lot more stories to tell and there was a lot more places to go yeah and so we kind of at that time our attitude was just jump jump into the fire you know and let's just do it you know and then um it was a hard year we were like we we're we're gonna pay for it you Uh know for sure okay uh mentally and physically and so that doesn't mean that we don't want to do it in our season like you know there's definitely more stories to tell and and there's more people that want to work with us It's endless, yeah. you know, and it's it's a you know, I, and, I, and I feel like we've, you know, but there was definitely times where we're working on this season two where we're having to make big compromises or our or our like attention has to, um, you know, can't be on this one specific thing that it needs to be, and it just was it was just chaos. Like the I would say the last like three, two, three months of production was just chaos, and like, you know, and and trying to like get this thing to air when it needed to go, and um, so. Huh you know, I think it's, uh, especially then when the pandemic hit, you know, we had right. to all start working remotely. So yeah, it was just, it was just tough. So I think going forward, if we can just have a little bit more time, yeah, <laughs> I think we'll be, we I think, love. I think we'll be easier for us.
1: Well, if it's any consolation, it does not look like it, the finished product is really well done. It's <laughs> it, it, no, it, it, I'm not, I can see it. Yeah. It's great. If there was a season three though, your uh top picks for who you'd want to do versus what you keep hearing from the fan base
0: that's a good way to put it so yeah obviously you know we get suggestions every minute of every day uh which is awesome you know it goes to show how many episodes you could do sure um for us you know normally the way we operate is we do we do keep a lot of um, what we want to do for future seasons, like, you know, close to the chest only because, you know, we want to be fair to families and to kind of give them the first opportunity to know mm. that this is what we want to do right. rather than read it somewhere. Uh, cause that's obviously something that we've, we've gotten into trouble with that before. Mm. Um, so, uh, but I think some of the episodes that I can talk about are some of the ones that I have before in terms of things that we'd love to do is, um, if 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 we do do a season three, I think the first thing that I would probably start putting together um, would be doing uh, the the story of when WCW ran an event in North Korea oh. uh, in the, in the '90s, which is actually the most uh, attended match in history. Whoa. It's the most. It's uh, there was over two days. There was a two day event, and there was over three hundred thousand people <laughs> that watched. This event, and it was Ric Flair and uh, um, Japanese wrestling icon Antonio Noki. And it's a crazy experience because how the whole event came together uh, was talking about flying at the seat of your pants, and uh, like, were all the government approvals there? I don't know. And it was this crazy thing that was basically put together as like a peace thing. And um, a lot of wrestlers kind of had that, that standard North Korea experience where, you know, it was this very guided tour, but then they saw a lot of glimpses of darkness uh-huh. and had some brushes with authorities and things got out of hand and partying where they shouldn't have been partying and things like that. Um, and so it's just, I think it would be a fascinating story. Sure. Um, and so that, that's one of the ones that I've really wanted to do. Um obviously one of the biggest requests that we get to do and something that we actually looked into doing for season two was doing an episode about China. Right. Um I think that there's an amazing story to be told there. Um I had heard that there's another project in the works, so I didn't want to necessarily we didn't want to like, you know, we wanted to wait and see what that was or if we were stepping on toes or you never mm-hmm. want to be doing the same interview as someone else is already doing.
1: Totally.
0: So I okay. think those two episodes are the ones that to me would be really interesting to do is there
1: any that are too big or um just off the like is hulk hogan approachable or is it, are some of these ones like we can't do those
0: hogan kind of um i mean hogan's you know, kind
1: of been done probably but
0: well i think i think hogan um from what i know i think hogan's kind of holding out for you know the big, big dollars you know th- yeah like the big hbo thing you know or something Uh you know some big play which i think would be great it'd be fascinating right so that story might just be too big for the format of our show but like his son
1: Um, or something you know like there's you could dive into any little thing but my i guess my question more so is like are some of these guys protected by vince mcmahon or have been told not to
0: yeah do things with you there's definitely you know um Sometimes there's um, relationships that they ha- may have with the company or may be under contract with the company that prevent them from doing things like this or would have to be subject to approval. Um, and usually those are situations that we just can't we, we know won't result in getting them to uh, be part of the show. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, so so usually the the folks that we have, on the show don't have those active relationships or or anything at stake and can speak freely and um and and that stuff so there are challenges and in, in, in that what limits you and what what you can get into okay with that yeah
1: well for my money i'm going uh waltman hall and rick flair
0: as stories Yeah. Oh, I mean,
1: Waltman's got it. Waltman and Hall, too. I mean, I think Hall killed somebody before he was a wrestler. So, yeah. So, like, there's a lot yeah. there. But uh, those guys, yeah, were definitely just, their personalities were I was always drawn to.
0: Definitely. Sean Waltman's an, one guy I would love to have on the show. Um, and, again, you know, if the China thing happens, he'd be a perfect person for that. Right. Um, And then, you know, Scott, we didn't unfortunately have a spot for him in season two, but would love to do something about him. And um, what was the other one you said? Oh, Flair. You said Flair. Yeah. Yeah. Flair is someone also we really tried to get uh, for season one for the Von Erich episode, oh. but he um, he was unfortunately undergoing a lot of operations at the time. Yeah. Um, but he's someone that needs to be on our show before it's too late. Exactly. One of my dreams that I would love to do is actually do an episode about the Fabulous Freebirds. Would be incredible. Oh, yeah. But you know, one of the main guys there is at the company now, so it's it's tough to do. But that would be amazing. Right. And again, Flair would be, have to be part of that.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, like I said, I could talk to you for another three days. But um, before we go, <laughs> could you give me a list of some of your favorite documentaries that you would want to suggest? Because yes. we are still locked up in this apartment, and I just, I just watch a lot of documentaries right now.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, of the documentary art form. Okay, well, um, I guess accessible. Uh, some of my faves. Um, I'll go. I'll go big first. Okay. Um, one of my faves is is um, is the documentary Crumb about our Crumb. Oh, have you seen it?
1: No, I ha- the artist, right? Oh.
0: yeah, yeah, the, the uh, comic book artist. Okay. I mean, it's a very critically acclaimed film, and it's you know, but it, it, it is isn't is one of my favorite portraits of an artist. Period. I think, because um, it really gets into his craft and into his mania, but it also g- gets into uh, his high, like highly eccentric, is putting it very lightly, uh, family, uh, most notably his two brothers. Okay. Uh, one that struggles with a lot of mental health issues and one who pff, likes to sw- swallow rope. I don't know <laughs> how else to put it. Whoa. But it's a fascinating character portrait and it's in- impeccably made. Of course, shot on film. I love documentaries that are shot on film. I just love the look of uh, of of like you know verite on film. I think is always just the coolest. So Crumb is is one I highly recommend. Another one is uh, a documentary called Hell House. Have you seen this?
1: Hell House, it sounds...
0: No, I don't think so. It's a uh, documentary about uh, haunted houses put on by a Pentecostal church oh, in the South rad. to no, scare you into it. Christianity. It's so well made. It's completely objective. The cool thing about it is it's such an intimate look into the making of this haunted house, which is already a cool story. Uh-huh. But also, like, I feel like the people who participated in making the haunted house would also watch this documentary and you know, be impressed, you know, like, like it's also for them. And it is for us as outsiders being like, what the hell, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. So I think it's awesome. Okay. Um, definitely recommend Hell House. Is disturbing on the list?
1: No, no, we're down. We, what we, we watch a lot of is a uh, true crime. Like I loved, there was a Netflix one about the guys on, uh, uh, what was it called Operation Odessa where they're on? Uh, oh yeah. Oh man, that thing was amazing. But we, we watched like Waco, all that stuff. And we we're just eating it all up, but we'll watch anything, you know, um, the HR Geiger okay. one. Have you seen that?
0: I haven't yet. Oh, I haven't got, yet. That I one's amazing. Why this yes. turned me
1: onto that? Oh, that's
0: cool. Yeah. Um. God, one of the freakier nightmare inducing things I've seen uh, recently is a documentary called mommy dead and dearest. Oh. Um, Which is, they they made it into a scripted series, but it's basically about the Munchausen by proxy syndrome. And it's uh, essentially a mother who kept her daughter believing that she was terminally ill, even though she was perfectly healthy, Uh like for this bizarre mental illness that I guess you are out for sympathy from others. And it is a terrifying but highly compelling story, Um, but definitely watch it knowing you're going to be highly disturbed so you have to be like ready to be disturbed to appreciate that and i would also throw onto that list well thin blue line we talked about it earlier if you haven't seen that no
1: i haven't i'm gonna i'm watching that tonight
0: that's a must yeah (laughs) a must um i would also say i mean capturing the freedman's is is incredible one of the best documentaries i've ever seen have you seen that nope (laughs) capturing the freedman's uh again disturbing but great uh it's a it's a uh documentary about uh, a guy who was doing a documentary basically he was doing a story about someone that he had come across who was a birthday clown and he wanted to do a documentary about him but what he unfolded was this dark family story where uh this birthday clown's father was actually accused of being a pedophile um and the whole story basically this whole story chronicles his family reckoning with this you know reckoning with the legal case and the uh public exposure and the media exposure of this all happening and what happens to a family when you know a, a, a a pedophile case or a child pornography case you know enters into that family dynamic and who do you choose to support and what happens and the complications of that um and it's uh it's just one of the best check it so those are my tops sweet thank you and then um, one
1: thing we didn't touch on was the music of these things is just, God, yes. it's like 50% of the show. It's so it perfect is. and great. It's a, yeah. it's amazing. And I'm guessing, did you guys have it made for the show or was it pre-existing?
0: Yes, I'm really glad that you you asked about it. Um, no, we, we work with um, two guys, uh, Wade McNeil and Andrew Gordon McPherson, Uh and they compose every piece of music that you hear uh for the show so over the course of the 16 episodes they've actually composed um 159 tracks for all of dark side of the ring which is insane um and their influences you know go from wrestling music wrestling entrance music you know to john carpenter to philip glass to uh you know all tangerine dream all that sick stuff yeah and and, and thankfully, we just announced it a couple days ago, um, but finally, uh, the soundtrack is being released. Oh. It's actually um, available right now on Apple Music and Spotify, but it's also uh, going to be coming to vinyl, uh, Waxwork Re- Waxworks Records. Um, is just put up for pre-order on their website waxworksrecords.com you can pre-order the deluxe double vinyl soundtrack that's coming out uh, oh. by these two guys and it's it's phenomenal. They did a beautiful job. The packaging is incredible. Um, oh. And so gotta snag that.
1: Okay well that was not um, that was not a work. it was a shoot question but it <laughs> sounded like a work and I'm not a job s- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah
0: no that was a, that was a, that was a straight shoot, my friend.
1: What do you think Vince McMahon thinks of this whole thing like are you on hmm. his radar does he hate what you're doing like what do you think well have you heard from him or his people at all
0: <laughs> no um no actually the only the only time that uh, the company's ever and this is even indirectly uh, commented on the show was was just a few days ago with that Martha thing as I was explaining huh. um but uh, no, and never really heard anything. I mean, I know a lot of wrestlers uh, on the roster watch the show um, as they are fans and things like that, and that's cool. But I've never heard anything official from them. I, I don't expect to. Hopefully, uh-huh. um, and you know, from what I know about Vince McMahon, I don't think Vince McMahon watches anything. Hmm. You know, <laughs> I think. Uh, is he that's just what like I've a heard. full
1: workaholic?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. He is. If he's not working out, he's working. And, um, in the rare instance, he'll be sleeping.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah,
0: so I don't think he watches anything.
1: I mean, from my perspective, wrestling is just never going to be the same with the politically correct, you know, our, our, the way things are now, you could never have the crazy shit that they you know, that they thrived off when we were growing up. And, and I don't know, they just don't even have like the mic skills and all that stuff anymore. It's just like, there's no
0: superstars. It's
1: just like a cast.
0: It's interesting. I don't think they make people like they used to, Uh you know? And I think that um, a lot of wrestlers, you know, they used to just spot you in in like a grocery store, you know, and just be like, oh, this guy looks like a tough guy. He could be in our business, you know? (laughs) And I think now a lot of guys are just, you know, getting into it being fans and, you know, and then the way the world looks, like everyone has to look like a reality star. So I think it's just taken away a lot from that like grizzled dad uncle look of the 80s which is what I prefer I want my wrestlers to look like dads um, at least my male wrestlers too you know and so it's like I want to you know make make wrestlers look like dads again is a, is a, is a thing that I'll probably launch soon as a mm. brand
1: alright well thanks so much <laughs> for uh,
0: spending I don't mean that <laughs> no dad's Oh no, I do mean it because I mean you look at look at like earthquake. Remember him? Like, yeah, you're not gonna find like like he was probably like earthquake in like his prime in the WWF. He was probably like 27. Damn, they don't make people look like that anymore.
1: Well, we, me and my brother, we used to not stock, but we would go. We found out what hotel they stayed at when when they were in town, and we mm-hmm. went and we would just go sit at the bar and drink. And after they would go, you know, come back, they would. A lot of them came to the bar. There was a night that was probably one of the greatest nights of our life. Uh, it was the big show. It was Holland Nash. It was Bobby the Brain Heenan and Amazing. Conan. And we're all at the bar in Oakland, and we're just we're just drinking and overhearing their stories. And fuck, man, that shit was like gold.
0: That's the best. You know, it's I've just, had a few of those nights. They're my favorite. Yeah, yeah, it's just I wish you could replicate that for a TV show, but I don't think it's possible. I've tried
1: ending the show is there a certain track we could play maybe oh yeah
0: yeah let me let me just pull up the track list right now so yeah I, I'm not like jobbing on this <laughs> there's so much music that's awesome but like one of the songs that I really like is I love the track that they did um, oh man there's so many I'm just looking at this right now I'm like having to pick one but I, I really dig the the track that they did for the Dino Bravo episode which is called? Um, it's track number three on on iTunes, Spotify. It's called Bravo Main Event. Okay, and it's 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 like the big opening song that they wanted to do for the Dino Bravo episode, and I think it's just an awesome wrestler, ro- wrestle rock kind of song. It's cool, um, and uh, they they also, you know, their their music ranges from, you know these awesome synth stuff this awesome like more like 80s wrestle rock kind of vibes but they also go into like some pretty amazing you know classical and understated music stuff and really emotional stuff too for the show and so they do tons of it and there's a great this basically this album that we're putting out this double album is kind of the best of uh of all the stuff they've done
1: well it is incredible because every episode we watch every one my fiance looks at me and goes this music is so
0: good and perfect for this oh that's awesome like
1: it's one of her constant comments about it and so yeah cool i'm gonna check it out and i'll let her know too she'll probably get the whole album she loves it
0: oh sweet yeah yeah yeah. that'd be awesome yeah well
1: man thanks so much um for spending (laughs) so much time it's been an honor and a pleasure to like pick your brain and talk about everything oh man
0: Thank you so much. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, keep up the good work. And uh, if there's Thank a season you. three, let me know if you need an extra camera, a grip, or anything production-wise. <laughs> I'd love to come on and uh, do a work. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, i would be so I'd love hyped. Um, you know, from a fan's perspective, I really hope there is a season three. Um, you guys need to keep it going because i think there's so many stories that people would love and and the ones that people are alive and they're getting older like that in skateboarding those are the things that i'm drawn to like we need to get this guy's story before he passes
0: oh yeah yeah definitely absolutely yeah
1: well fuck rest up and uh good luck with your future and again thanks so much for chiming in with us of course